Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega, and it's so great to be back with you in the host chair today talking all things politics. We begin with two dueling bills making their way through Congress that focus on the political future of Puerto Rico. The island is a U.S. commonwealth whose colonial status has been in the spotlight following the economic, political, and structural crises the island has faced over the past few years, including Hurricane Maria in 2017 and the ouster of Governor Ricardo Rosselló in 2019. For decades, residents on the island have voted for their political preference in non-binding referendums, but Puerto Ricans on the island still remain in political limbo, not exactly a state, but also not an independent nation. On Thursday, Representative Nidia Velasquez, along with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bob Menendez, officially announced the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act of 2021. This legislation recognizes the inherent right of the people of Puerto Rico to determine their own political future. Earlier this month, a competing bill was introduced by Representatives Darren Soto and Jennifer Gonzalez, Puerto Rico's non-voting member of Congress. Their alternative, the Puerto Rico Statehood Admission Act, would set up a framework to make the island a state. So on Friday morning, we called up... Neria Velasquez representing the 7th Congressional District in New York City. She's the first Puerto Rican woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. And since Puerto Rico's political advancement has been in the national conversation so much recently, I asked the Congresswoman how she expects to keep that momentum going. Well, I, I, I hope that we can all come together, uh, Puerto Rico leaders and uh, members of Congress, to really work in a path forward that will put an end to 123 years of colonialism, uh, where the people of Puerto Rico has been divided, where they do not have legal tools to deal with their own uh, challenges. We saw that during the financial crisis, Puerto Rico's right to declare bankruptcy was taken away by the U.S. Congress. Puerto Rico's um, opportunity to continue to promote economic development in Puerto Rico was taken away by Congress when they um, uh, ended uh, the uh, IRS Code 936 that promoted foreign investment investment from the United States uh, companies to Puerto Rico. So what, what it shows is that the many issues and the many challenges that Puerto Rico Uh, that the Puerto Rican people are facing today are rooted in the colonial status condition. Congresswoman, your uh, Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act of 2021, which you are co-sponsoring and officially announced this week, can you define what you mean by self-determination? Is to recognize what uh, uh, the inherent right of the people of Puerto Rico uh, to come together and... uh, 
decide what is the, their best political path forward is for them to come and define in a convention, in a status convention, the different formulas, the different uh, options, and put that uh, to the peoples uh, uh, to decide through a direct vote, uh, vote what is it that they want to do. So many people are saying that statehood uh, was voted uh, by 52% uh, in the last election. Well, we, this is a serious issue and it requires the participation of the US Congress and the US government. That plebiscite was basically a political tool for the party in power to entice voters to come to the polls. It wasn't binded uh, by, you know, it will not require any action or certification by the US Congress, nor did it was not was it defined uh, for the people of Puerto Rico. So they didn't know what does it mean? What type of responsibility if Puerto Rico become a state? So the statehood was not defined in the plebiscite bill. There was no education campaign about the implications of becoming a US state. And then you have a minority, almost 57% of the people of Puerto Rico who do not support statehood. They too have the right to be heard and to participate. Congresswoman, you mentioned the plebiscite, and and the this is something that uh, residents of Puerto Rico uh, for decades have essentially voted on these non-binding referendums about the status of their own island. Why not make that referendum? Uh, why not just offer the residents of Puerto Rico a referendum that does have teeth, that is binding, rather than creating an additional step here? Well, no, that is exactly what my legislation does. It provides for the people of Puerto Rico. This is, this is not any election. This is an important step forward to put an end to the colonial status of Puerto Rico. It requires a, a, a consultation uh, with the different formulas that will be outside the territorial clause. And uh, we got to be treat this with the seriousness that it requires. This will define the political future of the people of Puerto Rico. And so, uh, you know, what my legislation does, it, it empowered the Puerto Rican legislature to create a status convention and uh, whose delegates will be elected by Puerto Rican voters. And that body will develop a long-term solution and it will define each of the solution and it will have a transition plan for each of those solutions. So when people go out to vote, they will know what exactly they're voting for. This is not any regular election. This is the most important election in the political life and association with the United States for the last 123 years. Congresswoman, what do we know about whether or not there's congressional support for this uh, self-determination bill that you are proposing? And if there is, is it bipartisan? Yes, uh, we introduced the legislation yesterday. We had close to 80 uh, members uh, co-sponsoring the bill. 
And there is, is bicameral, uh, Senator Bob Menendez, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Booker, Senator uh, Wicker, who is uh, a Republican, uh, and many more. Eight senators um, are supporting this bill. And in the House, close to 77, uh, I think is the last count is 77 members. So that shows broad support. Uh, and not only that, this it has the support of 10 member, 10 chairmen of 10 different committees, including committees that have to do some, that has uh, the responsibility on this, on, on this bill and any other bill. Uh, Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, who is the chairman of the rules committee. Uh, Richard Neal, who is the chairman of Ways and Means. So it has... Um, I'm proud of the kind of support that we were able uh, to get from members of Congress, from my colleagues, and I'm very grateful for that. Congresswoman, you mentioned the uh, the colonial status of Puerto Rico, which uh, hurts the island essentially, especially at a at an economic and fiscal level. However, um, there is a body that that you voted for that you said it was one of the toughest votes of your career, which was to support Promesa, which was the fiscal oversight board that was appointed to manage uh, and essentially restructure the debt on the island. That board has since become uh, the target of a lot of criticism, uh, particularly as it's uh, debt restructuring and uh, lots of questions are being raised about whether that restructuring is fair to Puerto Ricans on the island or whether it favors investors and people who are not uh, residents of Puerto Rico. How do you respond to that? Well, um, we need to look at this in the context of the fact that Puerto Rico didn't have any framework, any legal framework to declare bankruptcy. If you look at the history of Argentina with hedge funds and vultures, they they took Argentina to court for so many years, I think 10 years. And finally, there was an agreement in federal court in New York. So Puerto Rico didn't have any tool to deal with bankruptcy. And uh, in fact, they borrowed money with the good faith uh, of the Commonwealth and the constitution of the Puerto Rican government. And that meant that um, that in any federal court, the judge could have ruled against Puerto Rico, telling them, you must pay it. There's no remedy here. We have to abide by the, ro- by the law. And if you don't have the money, then you will have to sell assets, public assets or seize any liquidity that Puerto Rico had at that moment. Knowing all that, I knew that the only way forward was to create this body because the Republicans here will not support any other uh, remedy uh, coming from the US Congress. You know, you have the Puerto Rico government borrowed money. Uh, It wasn't, it, 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 it was private money, so they, Will, have, will be in a position to have to pay uh, what they borrowed. So at that time, I supported PROMESA with the understanding that PROMESA provided an orderly um, uh, restructure of the public debt, plus also said 
that it will be the responsibility of the PROMESA board uh, to uh, use uh, uh, the power to promote economic development in Puerto Rico. Are you satisfied, so, uh, Congresswoman, we have one minute left, that that's what they've done so far? No, they have not. Uh, even though the latest plan uh, it has been much, much better, but I believe that the, the intent of the law was not um, mm-hmm. to create a collection agency for the hedge funds and vultures. And in fact, uh, what they have done is uh, implement austerity measures that will never work if we take into account the history and experience of Europe. When it comes to the question of Puerto Rico's political status, there there seem to be the folks, at least in my experience as as a, a member of the diaspora here in New York, there seem to be those who want statehood, those who uh, want uh, the, to contain, you know, could keep with the status quo, and those who want independence. And the independence call seems to be growing, even though it's still small. Is an independent Puerto Rico even possible um, when you look at the island of Puerto Rico right now? Well, uh, look, we don't know. What I can say is this, that there is so much skepticism and uh, cynicism toward uh, the, the government. And what happened uh, in uh, the summer of 2019 was quite revealing. A governor, a sitting governor was ousted Without a bullet, without any type of fights, people took it to the streets because they were fed up with the corruption that was happening in Puerto Rico. And so what we have seen is a transformation. I think that the summer of 2019 marked a beginning of a political transformation in Puerto Rico that generated into a multi-party system for the first time in its history. Puerto Rico was dominated. The politics in the island was always dominated by a two-party system. Today, we have five uh, political parties who has representatives in the state, um, in, in the legislature. And so a lot of the young people really are more engaged, uh, demanding accountability and transparency. You know, it's just really sad that young people fight so hard to get educated, they graduate and with one diploma in one hand and then a ticket to leave the island. And that shouldn't happen. And I believe that it, it that kind of uh, engagement by young people, by the youth. Uh, we don't know what consequences going forward will have, but I also believe that it marked the transformation of the political system in Puerto Rico for the good, for the better. And and the Puerto Rico since has uh, elected a new governor, Governor P- Pedro Pierluisi, who uh-huh. is a proponent of statehood. Um, have you had any conversations with Governor Pierluisi about yeah. self- self-determination versus statehood for the island? Well, he, he knows very well what my position is. And I 
you know, we had a meeting, it, it was a, a virtual meeting, um, and we didn't have much time to discuss this, but he knows that I would like to um, get a, a conversation going so that we treat this issue with the seriousness that it requires because it's in the interest of the people of Puerto Rico. Let me just also mention to you that the governor of Puerto Rico was elected with only 37% of support. So two thirds of the people of Puerto Rico voted against the current governor. And so uh, that is why I always say that putting the plebiscite as part of the November election was a way to entice uh, people to the polls and, uh, and save themselves uh, because there was so much hostility and anger toward the party in power. And uh, he represents uh, the new progressive party. He is a member of the new progressive party. Uh, Ricky Rosselló, who was the governor of Puerto Rico, was the one ousted and also come from the same party. Congresswoman, I have two questions for you are, are, as we wind down uh, that are not related to Puerto Rico, but are still critical uh, in the conversation regarding politics. You have been uh, for decades a leading voice on immigration reform. You've co-authored several pieces of legislation over the years on immigration reform. I, I'd love to get your take on what's happening right now at the southern border, particularly with migrant, unaccompanied migrant children who are coming to the United States. And I'm wondering if you've spoken to President Joe Biden about this and what your thoughts are and what needs to happen? Well, look, uh, what is happening in the border basically uh, represents the uh, failed policies of the previous administration. If you think that by punishing parents and children, you're going to end uh, uh, in, uh, undocumented people coming into the in, into trying to cross the border, it's not going to happen. Uh, I went to Central America with Speaker Pelosi. We saw firsthand the conditions, the violence, the corruption, and I think that we have a responsibility to make investment in those countries so that people believe that there is hope if they stay home. But just by punishing and, uh, and, and trying to, 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 to give a lesson, uh, it is not the way forward. Uh, we are better than that. And uh, now the administration is putting together not only immigration reform, but also an investment package um, that will help uh, people be able uh, to stay home by helping those governments to promote economic development. But it cannot be a blank check. We have to have oversight. We have to send a strong message to those leaders that we're gonna be watching. Um, that's where we are today. Uh, but, and let me also add that, you know, we passed the American Rescue Plan a great plan that has been supported by almost 75% of the American people, Republicans and Democrats alike. alike. And, and so for those Republicans, all of them who voted against it, they need to create a distraction. And the distraction is going to the border. But they are not willing to sit down and come to the table and look at how can we 
put an end to what is happening at the border. So we need to assume responsibility for what is happening and the fact that we failed in seeking solutions to the immigration issue. Finally, uh, Congresswoman Velasquez, you are a member of the New York delegation. And of course, as we know here in New York and across the country, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, is involved in a scandal involving several sexual harassment allegations. On March 12th, you called for the governor to resign, uh, saying that he had lost public confidence. But a recent poll of New York voters found that Cuomo still has support. What do you make of that? And and do you stand by uh, asking the governor to step down? Well, as I, I, I publicly, I did, and and I believe that the uh, investigation is going with the AG, and uh, so if he decided that he still have the confidence uh, of the people and that he could remain in office, then uh, the choice is to wait for the conclusion of that investigation. But if the investigation shows wrongdoing. And the nursing home issue also uh, is part of that investigation by the legislature. Uh, The governor needs to look to his, uh, to to everything that is happening and ask himself, can I govern given the pandemic, given the challenges that New York is facing, given the fact that now is not the time to be spending most of your time defending yourself, but executing a plan to get us out of this pandemic and, uh, and to deal with the issue of the state of the economy and the fiscal health of the state of New York. Can he have the energy? Can he have everything that it takes uh, to deal with those challenges? And that's the question that he needs to answer himself. We will be paying close attention. Congresswoman Velasquez, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. For decades, the residents of Puerto Rico who are granted U.S. citizenship at birth have voted on the future of the island's political status in non-binding referendums. And the results have often split into two major camps those wanting to keep the status quo, and those wanting statehood who have generally eked out a small majority. A much smaller percentage of Puerto Ricans say they want full independence. The conversation about admitting Puerto Rico to the union has gained more attention in recent years, and even President Joe Biden signaled his support for statehood on the campaign trail. So to talk about all this, we called up... Christina Ponza Kraus, and I'm a law professor at Columbia Law School. Puerto Rico has been a U.S. territory since 1898, when the United States annexed the island after the Spanish-American War. And Puerto Ricans have been U.S. citizens since 1917. This entire time, for the past 123 years, Puerto Rico has been U.S. soil, and federal laws have applied there at Congress's sole discretion. So Congress has made a few exceptions, but it is Congress and Congress alone that decides what federal laws apply in Puerto Rico and which ones don't. And Puerto Ricans have no representation in Congress at all, except for a non-voting resident commissioner, a person who serves in the House of Representatives. Puerto Ricans also can't vote for the president. So Puerto Ricans have zero 
voting representation in the federal government, and yet they're subject to U.S. sovereignty and federal laws. So Puerto Rico ought to be a state, and it really should have been a state a long time ago. We should be clear that Puerto Ricans can't vote for president, those who are living on the island, but Puerto Ricans who are here in the uh, continental United States are able to vote for president. That's correct. So let's talk about how it would happen. I mean, there has been uh, legislation introduced that would get the process started of Puerto Rico becoming a state. What needs to happen? The Constitution gives Congress the power to admit states, and it doesn't really spell anything else out. The bill that's been introduced in Congress, the Puerto Rico Statehood Admission Act, responds to the referendum in November by making an offer of statehood to Puerto Rico, depending on a second vote. So the Puerto Rico Statehood Admission Act actually proceeds quite cautiously. It recognizes the majority vote for statehood in November and appropriately makes an offer of statehood, but then it asks Puerto Ricans to vote a second time and confirm their desire for statehood. And upon that second vote, the president would have a year to issue a proclamation declaring Puerto Rico a state. Christina, one of the things that we hear, and, and my family is, is from the uh, island of Puerto Rico, and so I've, I've, I personally was born in New York, but I've been privy to this uh, debate my entire life. And, and there are, as you know, two large camps and then one smaller camp that's sort of politically. Uh, the two large camps are one is pro-statehood, one is pro-status quo, which is keeping the Commonwealth status. And the smaller camp is independence. And, and, and given the events of the past couple of years with Hurricane Maria and the economic devastation on the island and, you know, the, the crumbling of the infrastructure in many ways, um, there are people who say that statehood is the only way to remedy that. And then there are people who say that it's because of this relationship with the United States that pe- that Puerto Rico is in the situation that it's in, and that becoming a state would only uh, further, uh, I guess, reduce the sort of cultural importance that Puerto Ricans have, the language, the, this issue of, of Puerto Rican culture, of, of identity, uh, that it would strip that away. What are your thoughts on that? I was raised on the island and my family is there. So I um, grew up with the debate that you describe and you're absolutely right. The debate in Puerto Rico is really a debate between people who favor statehood and people who favor some version of the status quo and independence has for many decades had very little support. But I feel like it's important to clarify that even the people who support the status quo support an improved version of it. No one across the board supports the actual status quo, which is colonial. Puerto Ricans have for decades shared an overwhelming consensus really on two things. Number one, they are opposed to continuing to be a U.S. territory. Nobody wants territorial status. And number two, almost all of them, overwhelming majorities, support remaining U.S. citizens. Puerto Ricans value their U.S. citizenship and want to keep it that way. In my view, statehood is what absolutely should follow because statehood is the only way to cease being a territory while continuing to have guaranteed U.S. citizenship and continue to have a union with the United States. I believe that Puerto Rico's economic crisis is very much related to its colonial 
status. It's also the case that because Puerto Rico has no voice in Washington, it receives fewer federal benefits. Federal assistance in the wake of crises is less than it should be. It's slow. Puerto Ricans simply don't have the leverage that all U.S. citizens should have in Washington to get what they need. As for the cultural question, you are absolutely right to point to it. Uh, those Puerto Ricans who want to remain U.S. citizens but feel skeptical of or resistant to statehood are worried that statehood would have a detrimental effect on Puerto Rico's culture, that we would no longer be different and unique, that we would be assimilated into American culture. But my view is that Puerto Rico has already been part of the United States for 123 years, and we have sustained our vibrant and beautiful culture, and we can do that as a state. What statehood would bring is not the loss of culture, but political empowerment. I want to ask you uh, two questions uh, to follow up on that. One is that the financial effects here. One of the things that we're seeing and right now, Puerto Rico is being, uh, I guess, uh, fiscally governed by a uh, fiscal oversight uh, review board, the PROMESA board that has made, uh, for many people, they've been a, a controversial figure. Um, but we know that what's happening on the island uh, to large effect is the privatization of the island of many of the public lands, including beaches. Um, and of course, this is, you know, we did a report recently about wealthy Americans who are uh, running to Puerto Rico because of its tax shelter and tax haven status. Um, and my question to you, Christina, is how would statehood uh, curb that? Because the big concern is that Puerto Rico's natural resources in particular are being uh, raided and destroyed by uh, Western investors, but also that, um, the again, the cultural fabric of the island could be affected by these folks who are sort of going down there just because of the tax breaks. So what financial effect would becoming a state, would it curb some of this uh, wayward investment that we're seeing? So you, you, you put it better than, than I could. Uh, Puerto Rico is undergoing all of these effects right now as a territory. So greater equality in the tax treatment of Puerto Rico might make it somewhat less attractive to certain people who want to go down there for loopholes that wouldn't be possible under statehood. Uh, states themselves under their state tax systems can have varying benefits uh, that they provide their residents. So Puerto Rico could potentially remain attractive to certain people. But long story short, the problem of people going down to Puerto Rico, extracting its natural resources, availing themselves of tax advantages, those problems would only be more effectively addressed by statehood because Puerto Rico would have political power. And those problems are not prevented by the current status in which Puerto Rico is still part of the United States for these purposes. People can move back and forth, and there are particular loopholes that might prove attractive to people that wouldn't uh, apply under statehood. And finally, what has the Biden administration signaled about statehood so far, Christina? President Biden, when he was a candidate last fall, before he became president, made clear that he supports statehood, that Puerto Ricans must choose it for it to become a reality, and that if they choose it, the federal government must respond. Those three points are exactly right. He is an American who favors statehood. Why? Because he favors equality and representation for U.S. citizens, as he should. 
But he agrees that Puerto Ricans have to make that choice, which they did in November, and the Admission Act would provide for them to confirm. And he stated clearly that the federal government must respond to their choice, as it does with the Admission Act. Since President Biden was elected, the government has confirmed, the administration has confirmed that it supports a referendum in Puerto Rico, which is part of what the Admission Act provides for. But the key is that expression of support for statehood from President Biden. That's exactly the position he should have, and that's exactly the position he made clear he had. Christina Panza Kraus is a professor of law at Columbia University. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we've been talking about the political future of Puerto Rico in light of two competing bills being proposed in Congress and what each would mean for the island's three million residents. And as we've already heard, the divide in Washington mirrors what we see among Puerto Ricans both on and off the island. Some of you are calling for statehood. My name is JP Jesus Perez. Um, I'm from Bayamón, Puerto Rico, and I support statehood like thousands and hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans. We in Puerto Rico uh, value our citizenship. We call it Unión Permanente or permanent union with the United States. Um, Puerto Rico has been part of this fabric of this country for over a hundred years. I want everybody to be able to vote and have full civil rights. When Puerto Rico engages in the democratic process in a free and fair election and votes for statehood, they are determining for themselves their preferred status option at the ballot box. The plebiscito in the November election was a vote of self-determination and a vote for statehood. Others are opting for independence. My name is Alberto Medina and I'm from San Juan, Puerto Rico, but now live in Denver. I support independence for Puerto Rico because it is a nation, and nations should govern themselves, not be absorbed by the country that invaded them in an imperialist frenzy 120 years ago. Throughout most of our history, a majority of Puerto Ricans have wanted the colonial status quo, and that didn't make it any more right or just. So we have to go deeper than that, and, and we have to look at the history. Anyone who rejects Puerto Rican independence because the island is so poor and vulnerable that they think it wouldn't be able to stand on its own two feet should ask themselves how. It got that way when the U.S. has been in charge all this time. But history also includes suppression and persecution of the Puerto Rican independence movement. So it can't be just about heeding the will of the people on one vote last year. We have to also care about how the will of the Puerto Rican people has been ignored and subverted by the United States for decades. But many of you are instead reflecting on the process of figuring out the path forward and the idea of self-determination that's being pushed for by Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez and others. My name is Edil Sepulveda. Uh, I am a Puerto Rican living in the Washington, D.C. area, and I am the co-founder of Boricuas Unidos en la Diaspora. And we Puerto Ricans, we need self-determination now. Uh, we are colonial subjects in an occupied land, and we deserve a real, a serious, a democratic, and transparent self-determination process, which we haven't had before. So that's why we all have to support this Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act. We all have to unite together, Puerto Ricans and Americans, and end 123 years of colonialism once and for all. Hi, my name is Christian Vasquez. I'm originally from Bayamón, Puerto Rico, currently residing in North Carolina. 
I am supportive of the self-determination process and the bill submitted by Congresswoman Velasquez. Uh, we need a process that is inclusive, that is just, that is democratic, and that will represent all the different viewpoints and communities within and outside of the island. Hi, this is Reggie. I'm a Puerto Rican who currently resides on the island. I actually take issue with the premise that is either statehood or self-determination. They're not mutually exclusive. We as the people, our elected representatives, organized that plebiscite and 53% of voters voted for statehood. So I think the, uh, the question right now that people have to answer or the question that needs to be asked is, do you support what the people support? Do you support democracy? If you have something to add, record a voice memo and email it to takeawaycallers at gmail.com or go to thetakeaway.org and click on Contact Us to record your answers straight into your computer or phone. This is The Takeaway. A journalist gives up his disinformation beat to buy a site of satirical fake news, The Onion. We often hear from journalists that running a media outlet shouldn't be complicated, and yet the suits make it so. You're now a suit, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Is it complicated? (gasps) You can't say this, but I'm in two tuxedos right now. It's one tuxedo inside (laughs) of another tuxedo. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Back now on The Takeaway, I'm Tanzina Vega. Earlier this week, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, released a declassified report on foreign interference threats in the 2020 election. And while there's no evidence that any interference altered votes in the election, the report outlines efforts authorized by foreign leaders, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, to influence public opinion about the presidential race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Much of the information contained in the report brings to mind a warning that former special counsel Robert Mueller delivered in May 2019 after concluding his own investigation into the 2016 election. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Andrea Bernstein is a WNYC editor, most recently with the Trump Inc. podcast, and the author of American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, welcome back. Hey, great to talk with you. And I also have Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Suzanne, I almost didn't get through that title, but welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Andrea, We heard Robert Mueller there saying, hey, you guys should pay attention. There's some interference in your election happening. And did this report confirm that? Oh, yes. I mean, it absolutely did. I mean, I I think what's interesting about this report is that um, it tells a story about messages that the Russians consistently push from 2014, 2014, uh, almost up until the present moment. And it was a anti-Biden, pro-Trump, and also a message to undermine confidence in the American electoral system. So while 
I don't think anybody would be shocked to learn this information. I think what is striking is the the longevity and the consistency of the message and the way the Russians' message dovetailed with what came from the White House from 2017 to the beginning of 2021. Suzanne, you, uh, having been a senior advisor for Homeland Security, what stood out to you most um, about this report? Well, I, I agree with Andrea. I think it was very important that the intelligence community confirmed that, in fact, we did see Russia particularly, predominantly, and other countries as well, uh, trying to influence the public discourse, political discourse in this country, and uh, and that it did not end on election day, right? That they continued to push the big lie that the election was rigged. And this is consistent with the narratives that Russia has been pushing. And we know this uh, is not just about elections, but about undermining public trust in democracy and about our institutions across the board. And I've been looking at the ways in which Russia has been undermining public trust in our justice system, for example. So I think it was really important, both those messages. It, it feels like folks aren't as excited about this type of news right now, Andrea, but are you feeling that as well? Like this is sort of, why are we even talking about this now? Oh, no. I mean, I think because we see the Republican Party building its both its policy and its political messaging on these elect on these messages of uh, no confidence in the electoral system. I think it is still very much present, and we need to analyze uh, how to handle it going forward. Andrea, Russia, no surprise, showed up in this report. How did their meddling efforts, if you will, differ in 2020 compared to what we saw in 2016? Well, the intelligence community uh, report pointed out that Russia, unlike in 2016, did not attempt to interfere with the election apparatus. So that is one big difference. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it was quite similar. Uh, and I think what sort of jumps out to me about this report is that the Russians were very, very focused on discrediting uh now President Biden, uh, for a time during this report, he was vice president and then he was out of office, uh, and his family with respect to their, to his son Hunter's business dealings in Ukraine. And I think that uh, what it doesn't say in this report is obviously the entire first impeachment inquiry about then-President Trump was over Rudy Giuliani, his personal attorney, seeking to get this information from the Russians. And this report, if you will, shows the other side. It shows how President Putin directed uh, the kind of interaction that Rudy Giuliani had with Russian intelligence assets who were promoting an anti-Biden narrative. And while a lot of this was warned. Former intelligence officials said during the election, there were some 50 of them that signed a letter that said these uh, Biden family narratives smack of Russian propaganda. It was striking to see this written in a report that this was the Russian strategy. The Russian strategy was to undermine confidence in the election and taint now President Joe Biden with these narratives. And they got so close to President Trump news officials, uh, and spread this narrative out. Now, having said that, 
I think one huge difference is that President Trump had many, many, many tens of millions of Twitter followers, and he was putting out these same messages to undermine confidence in the election and to taint the Biden family. So it's hard to untangle how much Russian uh, interference efforts may have affected those U.S. beliefs, and uh, this report doesn't actually address that. There were, Suzanne, initially there were many concerns about not just Russia, but also uh, whether or not Iran and China would also be, uh, you know, any would also have any significant uh, meddling, if you will, in our election. The report mentions that Chinese officials chose not to attempt to interfere in the 2020 election. Why would they make that choice, Suzanne? Well, it's it's really very interesting and important to note. Uh, what they say is that they assess that China values a stable relationship with the United States. They understand that uh, they understood that they were going to have challenges, whether it was Trump or whether it was Biden. The challenges may have been different, um, but but they were going to be challenged in either instance, and uh, and that if they were caught trying to interfere in the election, that would further destabilize that relationship. And it's important to understand that that, that uh, notion of getting caught, that valuing a stable relationship, those are points of leverage that we can use and have used in the past uh, to affect China's behavior. Russia, on the other hand, as, as clarified in this assessment, um, assesses that its relationship is already so bad that it has little to lose. And uh, where China can go around the world trying to offer up its mo- system its, of governance as a model that contrasts with Western democracy, Putin knows he has no model to hold up. So he, his, his objective is simply to pull us down, to portray us as corrupt and hypocritical and broken as the Russian system. And, of and course- that tells us how we can... Uh, what leverage we have with Russia as well. Do we have any leverage, I guess, Suzanne? That would be the question. Well, I think uh, that demonstrates that Putin understands that his public is not particularly happy with the governance or at least a segment of his population that he enough that he cares about. Uh, certainly, he is sensitive to protests that have happened in Russia around corruption allegations, right? And uh, so that's an important thing for us to know. Putin and and Xi Jinping both place at the top of their list of priorities, staying in power. So understanding what they think they need to stay in power is how we're going to uh, be able to determine where we might have some leverage. And Suzanne, what about Iran? What role did they play, if any, um, in their own attempts at uh, election interference here in 2020? So that was interesting as well, although much of this we knew because the Iranian attempts uh, were a little more clumsy and were found and taken down uh, at the time by the platforms. Uh, But interesting that Iran has taken a page from the Kremlin playbook uh, and and did things like send intimidating emails uh, posing as Proud Boys uh, to to potentially Democratic voters saying, you know, you better not uh, vote for the Democrat. You better change your your thinking. Um, Rather clumsy, uh, but interesting that they wanted to get involved and, and, again, were 
uh, trying to stir up trouble, and and in this instance, anti-Trump. Andrea, just curious, how effective do you think these uh, messaging campaigns were? Well, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves that question. I think one of the things that is interesting and that the report pointed out was that these Russian messages, the anti U.S. election apparatus messages, which coincided with Trump's, were coming after the election. And we know what happened on January 6th. Now, how much did Russian information contribute to that versus uh, what Trump was already putting out? It's hard to say, but it's alarming that those two messages dovetailed so much, the Russian governments and the message that Trump was putting out to his supporters in the days before the insurrection on January 6th. Suzanne, was the intelligence community, and I guess this is a, a question I'm asking now that we have this report in hand, but how prepared was the intelligence community for these attempts ahead of the 2020 election? Because we know that under the Trump administration, there was tension between uh, the Trump administration and many of the uh, national security uh, personnel um, who were uh, supposed to be in charge of this. So tell us how that affected what we know now. Well, I think the good news is that what we see is the intelligence professionals uh, continued to do their work and, and their mission. We were much better prepared for the information operations in even in 2018 and certainly by 2020 than we were uh, in 2016. And so, for example, in the report, we see that the uh, what appears the uh, government, the intelligence community, presumably shared information on a more timely basis with the social media platforms that um, facilitated their ability to detect these disinformation campaigns and where appropriate to take them down. So that's a step forward, I think. And, and we, when we see how the election officials were in conversations with my old shop at the Department of Homeland Security, which is now called CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, for four years uh, getting ready for this national election, um, that a big part of what they were training for and preparing for were efforts to undermine public confidence in the legitimacy of the process and therefore the outcome. And that was a big part of what was behind the push for paper ballots so that there would be an audit trail and you could go back and reassure uh, the public about what happened in the election. So I think everyone was better prepared for those information operations this time around. Andrea, I'm curious in terms of how much attention has been paid to the 2020 election before it actually happened and election security overall. And then this report emerges and it doesn't seem to make a, a big splash. Were you surprised by that? Well, I mean, I do think that uh, there is a, you know, sort of a, I mean, I, no. <laughs> and the reason <laughs> is, is because a, a lot of different parties have a reasons for looking ahead. Biden, President Biden, is uh, has made quite clear that he wants to focus on his agenda, not the Trump administration. Uh, the Republicans in Congress, some of whom may have pushed similar messages to the Russians, uh, undermining confidence in absentee voting uh, and in the American election system, also don't have an incentive. And for those of us who are journalists who covered Trump, uh, I'm, I'm certain that there is a feeling on the part of some people that sort of Trump occupied everyone's brains for four years. It's time to move on and, and deal with other issues. That said, 
I think that what is striking, as Suzanne said, is that the Biden administration is issuing this information. This information directly contradicts what some Trump officials were putting out during the election. For example, President Trump and his allies were downplaying the role of the Russians while upplaying, if you will, the role of the Chinese, even though this report clearly says that China wasn't a major uh, actor in the 2020 elections in the United States. So I think that uh, there is certainly going to be a clarification. There has been a clarification of the historical record. And I think that there are still open questions about uh President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who has been reported to still be under investigation for some of his activities in Ukraine. Uh, So we will see where that turns up. Uh, But I am pleased to see that information, clear information about the historical record is now being put out. And uh, I hope that this continues to be the case. One of the things that that has stood out to me as we talk about misinformation and disinformation is is essentially how successful some of these campaigns uh, have been, um, and we see the rise of conspiracy theories, uh, particularly uh, thinking about things like QAnon, and you know how really they've influenced uh, a lot of the uh, thinking um, of average Americans. Suzanne, I'm wondering. You know, why are why is the general public in the United States today so susceptible to uh, foreign disinformation campaigns? What, what was it? Would they I mean, I know that part of the thinking was to sort of tap into, at least on the part of Russia, was to tap into the racial uh, tensions that have always existed in the United States. Is that partly why they were so successful? Uh, That's a great question, Tanzina. And and yes, systemic racism is certainly one of the vulnerabilities uh, that the Kremlin seeks to exploit. Uh, As this assessment points out, they are exploiting divisions, uh, you know, much, much broader than that in our society as well. I think they're also taking advantage of the isolation. I think it's exacerbated by Uh, COVID and our inability to interact on a personal basis. It's much easier to demonize uh, people who, when you're only interacting online. There's been a fear of change uh, for quite some time now that they tap into and exploit. All of these things, I think, are channeled into a sense that democracy has failed and cannot be fixed. That's the narrative, ultimately, sort of the meta-narrative, if you will, that Russia is pushing. And we've seen a decline in support for democracy, again, based on weaknesses and vulnerabilities of our own making, but definitely exploited and exacerbated by these narratives that the system is rigged and that it is irrevocably rigged. I wonder how much of this is also um, a lack of our own, you know, understanding in this country about how our government works and how democracy works and sort of the, the civic education that we uh, might be lacking and, and, and even maybe some critical thinking or media literacy. How, all of those things have to play into this, right? It's a big question, and I'm only giving you a minute and a half to respond, but... Well, it's exactly the right question, and and I could not agree with you more. I think ultimately the way to counter these information operations is to build public resilience against the pernicious messaging that our system is irrevocably broken. And civics education is a way to remind people that the beauty of democracy is not that it's perfect, but that it can be changed, that it is susceptible to change, unlike totalitarian and authoritarian regimes. We need to teach Americans 
how to hold our institutions accountable, and how to be more effective agents of change. Suzanne Spaulding is the Senior Advisor for Homeland Security at the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And Andrea Bernstein is our WNYC editor and the author of American Oligarchs. Andrea, Suzanne, thanks so much for being with us today. Great speaking with you. Thank you. folks that's our show thank you to the team who helps put this thing together every day jackie martin is our line producer our producers were jose olivares ethan oberman meg dalton patricia jacob lydia mcmullen laird and our senior producer is amber hall Polly Arungu is our digital editor. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. Takeaway.